This is a podcast from Minute Media. In the fall each year we all congregate The mouth all gathered at the church of Tailgate The scriptures reading from the book of months in Our favorite verse, my God, a freshman Drunk and obnoxious, what children face Ain't nothing finer in the lane Now the 3,000 of our best friends It's Saturday and last thing Welcome to the Saturday Night Athens podcast. We're a Georgia Bulldogs show by dogs fans for dogs fans. I'm your host, Herschel Gurley, joined as always by my co-host, Boss Dog. And Boss, boy, this is our, what, this will be our 86th episode. And out of all 86, man, this might be the, the coolest one we've ever had. I mean, we had the absolute pleasure of interviewing former Georgia head coach Mark Rick. And, and man, it was just an absolute delight to talk with coach. Um, what, were your, what were your thoughts on the interview? What were your takeaways? First off, without Coach Rick, we're not here today. We're not living through what, in our opinion, the glory days. So, and he is a damn good person. There is yes. no question about it. And there are several times when in the interview where you just get a little choked up listening to him talk. Just so he's just such a good person. I know I said that, but it's just, there's really no other way to put it. And, you know, talking about the hot seat and everything that that story that Arthur Lynch told us, we brought that up and him bring, you know, just speaking about that and his, you can tell that still to this day, his love for his players is still there. There's just no doubt in his relationship with, with God and everything like that. He's just such a good, kind person. And the interview and him taking the time to speak to us was just greatly appreciated. And especially with everything he's going through right now. And, you know, we wish him, you know, all the best with his recovery. But if nothing else, if you don't, don't listen, want to listen to anything in the beginning, talking about the book, fast forward to the Smart 16. He has some legendary answers that are right in our wheelhouse. So if you don't want to listen to anything else, at least listen to that. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, man, I, I get, we got done talking to him, and I just kept saying to myself, boy, he's just a world-class person and somebody that walks the walk, right? You know, he has had the platform to be in front of countless young men and influence countless young men's lives. And he has lived that out to the max. Right. And been such a positive influence on so many kids. And it's like we talked with him about in the interview, man. What a legacy. I just think it's such a beautiful legacy that he has, not only as a coach, but just as a man um, and as a role model. And I, I thought it was so such a, a keenly interesting answer when he talked about um, his legacy and kind of said, you know, I, I always tried to be obedient to God, and that's what drove me. I knew when I got to the pearly gates that God wouldn't quote my win-loss record. And, boy, that was, that was real powerful. And, you know, it's so evident based on – the folks that we've talked to, right? Like, yeah, it's never football. When you talk to those guys about coach, it's always about the impact that he's had on them individually and in their growth as men. And man, I, I just, I just love that. And to your point, you are absolutely right. You have to know that outside of Vince Dooley, coach Rick is top three, maybe top two most influential people in Georgia football program history. Because look, people seem to forget how down the late 80s and the entirety of the 90s were. And when he got there before the 2001 season, he turned that program around and made Georgia a relevant contender again. Georgia became a relevant brand again because of coach. And I mean, for me, I think based on just what he did on the field, right, just his accomplishments, he's College Football Hall of Fame in my book, right? Like he should be in the College Football Hall of Fame. But you pair that 
with what he was as a coach and a man from a leadership perspective, I mean, it's, it's no doubt uh, to me. He has to go and be in the college football hall of fame. I mean, I don't even think that's in question. Do you? No, not at all. And if he doesn't make it, it would actually be a travesty. That would be one of the all-time snubs of him not getting in. Yeah, I, I just think he, he's done everything meritoriously on the field and off the field to garner that honor. And I hope that that happens, you know, sooner rather than later. And speaking of him being honored, Georgia announced today that uh, he will be honored at the Missouri game on November 6th, which is so, so well-deserved, well-earned. And um, I'm sure that'll become a hot ticket with, with him getting honored at that ball game. So I, I love that. I love that they made that announcement today. You could tell talking with him how much passion he still has for the University of Georgia and how much he loves the dogs and is just hooked in to that. And so I just think that's such a cool honor for him and love that. So without further ado, here is our interview with former Georgia football head coach Mark Rick. We are beyond excited today to be joined by Mark Rick. And coach, I'm just going to tell you this. We've had you're probably, I guess, our 30th guest on the show. And you're the one I can say with pure conviction that needs no introduction. So welcome to the show. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Are you driving? You're not driving, are you? No, sir. I'm, I'm in the I'm in the Buick Enclave studios, as I call it. I'm taking a little <laughs> break, taking a little break from the work day today so we could do this with you. So we're blessed to have you today. I feel I feel underdressed. I should have wore a coat and tie. Oh, no, man, you look like how I'd like to be dressed. <laughs> I wish I was T-shirting it today, too. Well, Coach, uh, we're, we're so thrilled to have you today, and, and obviously want to start off with you. Uh, big game on Saturday night between two conferences that you're very familiar with, with Georgia right. and Clemson opening in Charlotte. Uh, what did you think of the opener, and what were your thoughts after the final right. whistle sounded? Well, just to start off, I did pick Georgia. I was the only one. I was the only one in the studio that picked Georgia. I really believed it was going to be a defensive game. I thought both defensive lines were elite. I thought both offensive lines uh, were not not bad, but they were not elite in my mind. And uh, knowing that Clemson wasn't sure who, who was even going to be their center going into the game, I knew that didn't bode well for whoever was going to line up against that. Big nose guard Georgia's got. But, uh, I don't know. You probably know his name. I forgot it, but uh, should have memorized it after that game. But it, it pretty <laughs> big, much. What's his name? Big Jordan Davis. Big Jordan. Yeah, Davis. Jordan. Big Jordan Davis. So yeah, he is big. <laughs> but uh, you know, so you know, I, I knew both quarterbacks needed protection. You know, they're not the most mobile guys in the world. Uh, they needed a run game, and your offensive line's got to went up front for that to happen. So I really didn't think it would be that bad of a beat down uh, on both sides as far as offensive lines struggling to, you know, give their quarterbacks time and their back space. But, I mean, no offensive touchdowns. I can't even remember a game like that. I can remember when one team didn't score, uh, but I can't remember when both teams never scored an offensive touchdown. But uh, it was a great game for sure. Obviously uh, sets Georgia up in a good spot. You know, they're ranked number two in the country now, which is great. Uh, you know, Clemson is still in it. Obviously they dropped to six and, you know, could and should win out with the schedule that they have. We'll see, you know, the thing I'm curious about Clemson is, you know, will they have a marquee victory somewhere down the road to put them into the playoffs? So just depends how great Ohio, you know, if Ohio state's undefeated, Oklahoma's undefeated. Uh, Georgia stays undefeated going into that into, into the Bama game at the end, if that's what it is, and loses a close one. You know who gets in? I mean, it's going to be going to be Georgia over Clemson if it comes down to that. So Clemson's probably going to need a little help, quite frankly, to to get into it. Yeah, that's a great point, and I, I will say I feel like the narrative around Clemson has been that you know. You know, maybe this is an indictment on Clemson, but we were at the ball game, and, and I'll tell you, I was really impressed with how they were flying around on the defensive side of the football. 
I did not expect them to fill up space and fly that way. And it was, it was really, really impressive. And I think there are going to be some folks in the ACC that are going to be hurting all week long after they play the boys from Clemson. (laughs) Yeah, there's no doubt, you know, they're outstanding defensive team and, you know, and we know Georgia's had some injuries at the skill positions and, you know, really didn't have – I mean, that was the biggest glaring weakness on Georgia's offense is just the fact that it didn't look like there was anybody that could stretch the field. And, you know, maybe yeah. they'll be getting some guys back before it's over. I don't know, you know, the extent of the injuries. But, uh, you know, if they run up against an Ole Miss, you know, I know they're – I don't know, Ole Miss is not on the schedule, but watching Ole Miss play – they're going to score points. You know, watching Bama play, they're going to score points. There's, there's certain teams that can score. And, uh, you know, Georgia's got to be able to keep pace. And, you know, not every, not every defense is Clemson's defense, but there's some pretty good defenses, obviously, in the SEC. So, you know, Georgia's got some work to do on the offensive side of the ball for sure. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's something that we were a little surprised about was kind of the lack of verticality. Now, look, you got to give some credit to – Coach Venable and what they did scheme-wise, but I think to your point, they they were missing an element that could beat whatever coverage was out there, right? And well, yeah. and, and hopefully that comes back soon. Well, here, here's one of the issues, too. I mean, if a quarterback is not a really a great runner, not a threat to run, and, and if you know they're throwing the ball, you, you can drop eight. If you get any kind of pressure at all with the three-man rush and drop eight into coverage, that, that's a whole different world to throw into, so – you know, first and second down has got to be very productive for both of those offenses. So third third downs become manageable. And too many third and longs is going to be bad news for those guys. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, I, I want to talk with you about the your recently released book, Make the Call, Game Day Wisdom for Life's Defining Moments. I had a chance to, to read through it. I just want to say first and foremost, it is fantastic. All dogs fans and, and all college football fans really should should make sure and sprint to the bookstore and grab it or get it off Amazon. Could you tell us what the what the process was like behind writing that and what the motivation right. for writing the book was? Right. Well, I actually was trying to I was going to write a book while I was head coach of Georgia. I, I was dumb enough to think I had time to do that. And uh, I found out very quickly that by the time we we're editing chapter one, two days started. And I'm like, forget this. So, you know, I, I canceled that bad boy. And then after um, after I retired from coaching, my literary agent said, hey, let's write that book. And I said, ah, I don't know if I want to do that or not. So a couple of months later, I have this heart attack and uh, so barely survived that thing. And when, when that was over, I'm like, if I'm going to write a book, I better hurry up and write it. You never know what's next. And uh, so – that's kind of the thought process of the timing of the book. And uh, I basically sat down with Lawrence Kimbrough, my partner in crime, as far as the co-writer. And uh, we just sat down for two days straight and I just told stories. He recorded them. And then we ultimately realized it probably ought to be a memoir. ought to be in chronological, chronological order as much as possible. A couple flashbacks to make the most sense. And so, uh, I'm telling these stories, he's getting all the info, and then he goes back to fact check everything and corrected about 60% of what I was saying. <laughs> now, <laughs> but there was a lot of little things like what year this game happened or who was the head coach for the other team and all that kind of thing that I didn't get quite right. But uh, And then he did a good job of you know, getting on YouTube and watching certain plays that we're talking about or certain games that we talked about and, you know, got the flavor of what was going on in the stands. And, you know, he just he, he brought a lot more life to it than what I would be able to even see myself as head coach. I thought one of the neat things in the book was you, you talk a lot throughout the book about how God is always guiding our path, even when we're not aware of it. And I thought maybe at no point in your story was that truer than your initial interview with Coach Dooley for the Georgia job. Uh, it happens in New York at the Heisman Trophy presentation, which, if I'm rem- remembering correctly, was for Chris Winkie. And all the things that had to line up from Chris Winkie stopped playing pro baseball, from him beating out Dan Kendra for the job after Dan Kendra gets hurt, uh, from having the, the magical year that he has, ending up in New York for that Heisman presentation, and then that dovetails into your meeting with Coach Dooley. So could you just 
talk on that concept a little bit and about the premise of, of God always working in our lives, even when maybe we don't feel it or, or expect it? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely, uh, you, you mentioned a lot of things that had to come together. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but it might have been uh, a year after Winky's Heisman, it, I think. But I'm not 100% sure. And a lot of times you get invited back uh, for the uh, guys that have gotten it in the past. But uh, whether that was 100% correct or not, I'm not sure because I get it wrong all the time. But uh, there was another time that I remember distinctly where I was actually on the way to LSU as a graduate assistant. My, my U-Haul was packed, and uh, I was on the way to be uh, a graduate assistant at LSU when the night before – I left to go to Baton Rouge. Coach Bowden called me and offered me a chance to be a graduate assistant uh, at Florida State. And not only that, but he's going to allow me to, you know, coach the quarterbacks under his guidance, which was a better deal than assisting the quarterbacks coach at LSU. So if he didn't call me the night before I left, if he, if he had called me the next day when I was already in Baton Rouge, I know my, I know me, I never would have changed my mind. So that was a, a huge God thing, in my opinion, that the timing was just perfect to get me to where I needed to be. I know how special your time in Tallahassee was and how much Coach Bowden meant to you. What was the number one lesson that you took away from your time coaching with him? Well, just from football, how would, you know, as far as football is concerned, there's a lot, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, you know, I played under Howard Schnellenberger, God rest his soul. And, uh, you know, he was a very – I mean, he was the offensive coordinator for the Miami Dolphins when they went undefeated. He brought the Miami Dolphin NFL system to college football, and I just happened to benefit, even though Jim Kelly, you know, was living my life as the player. <laughs> I at least – I got to learn all that good stuff, and it really helped me when I became a graduate assistant coach at Florida State. Coach Bowden was very different in how he liked to approach offensive football and, quite frankly, how he liked to uh, motivate players. You know, I mentioned it at his funeral that, uh, you know, or the celebration of his life where, you know, a lot of men motivate through fear and intimidation and he motivated through compassion and, and love. And you know, he wanted to capture the heart of the player and uh, he knew that the better man you built, the better team you had. So, you know, I learned a lot. I learned there was more than one way to do things, more, more than one way to be successful. Obviously, both head coaches were uh, wildly, you know, successful. Coach Nunnerberger winning the national championship at Miami for the very first time. And Coach Bowden, you know, doing what he did. So I, I got a chance to live under both. And I, I got a chance to learn from both. When you were making the decision to transfer from being an assistant to being a head coach, and you say in the book that you had interviews at, at lots of different places, what was the separator when you talked to Coach Dooley and were presented with the Georgia job that made you and Catherine say, you know what, this is the right move for us. This is the place right. we want to be with our family. Well, a couple things happened. You know, five years prior to me going to Georgia, um, I was getting, getting interviewed for the University of Pittsburgh job, and we chose not to take it because, quite frankly, I didn't think I was ready to be head coach, but I think God was saying, you better get ready. And uh, the other thing was uh, I wasn't sure that I wanted to live in Pittsburgh the rest of my life. And I felt <laughs> like, you know, li living under Coach Bowden, being in the same place for 20, 30 years, you, you, there's, a, there's an attraction to do that. So I felt like if I ever became head coach, I wanted to go somewhere where I thought I could be for the rest of my career. I never wanted to go into a team meeting room to say, hey, guys, I appreciate you guys. I love you, but uh, thanks for getting me where I really want to be. See you later. You know, that wasn't a, that wasn't a scenario I wanted. So, uh, and the other thing was, you know, we, we, Catherine and I felt like Athens, Georgia would be a wonderful place to raise our children. And they were all, you know, just little peanuts at the time. So the lure of Athens and the uh, history and tradition of Georgia football and uh, playing in the Southeastern Conference, all, they were all exciting thoughts. But I will say my conversation with Coach Bowden was interesting. He's like, be careful what you ask for, buddy. He said, <laughs> uh, 
He said, uh, "You're gonna when you become head coach, you're gonna have to handle about a crisis a week." And uh, he was right for sure. But uh, it was all worth it in the end. We've had the privilege of talking to a number of folks that were either for, former players of yours or part of the program when you were there. And it struck me talking with all of them that the message was pretty much the same because we asked all of them what it was like either playing under you or coaching under you because we had some graduate assistants. We had Ray Fulcher, who's now doing well in the country music world on. And they all just spoke so glowingly about you and with such a sense of respect. And it was always about the impact that you had on them as men. And there was never a football story told in that initial question. And I've always thought what a beautiful legacy that is for that to be the memory of the people that have been in your orbit. Um, And so could you just talk about that and what that means to you? Right. Well, for me, It was about being obedient to God. You know, once I came to know Christ in 1986, while I was at Florida State, you know, my goal became to try to live a life that would be pleasing to God. And that was, that was it. And I've always felt like when I get to heaven, God's not going to say, hey, how many championships did you win? He's going to say, what did you do with the players and the coaches that I put under your leadership? And, uh, and hopefully he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, we've we've uh, we had a couple folks <clears throat> that have come on the come on the show and you talked about it in the book about the hot seat tradition. That was one <laughs> that y'all had started at Georgia. And we've actually right. had a couple folks tell us stories about that. But the one that that stuck with us and it's been told, but uh, we, we got the uh, chance to talk with Arthur Lynch about a month ago. And he told the story about you coming in and sitting in the hot seat for a team meeting and asking all the guys to raise their hands if they came from a single parent household. And, you know, he said, I was one of the ones that raised my hand and a lot of guys in the room raised their hand. And you had told the team, you had said, you know, look, what this is about for me is making sure that when your kids come back here, these hands aren't raised because you've been present and you've been an example in their lives. He said, that's what means the most to me more than, you know, what we're doing on the football field. And when he told the story, and even when I'm telling it now, it just makes the hair on my arms stand up. I just think it's such, such a neat thing. And um, just, I I don't know. I, I think it's such a beautiful legacy for you to have as, as a head coach, as a man, as a father, as a friend. So um, I just wanted to share that with you because it was such a, a cool, cool yeah. thing for him to recount. Well, it's it's hard to hold back tears right now, to be honest with you, but <laughs> it was a big deal. Well, I, I do want you to talk a little bit, bit about the hot seat for a minute. I know you told the story in the book about mm-hmm. going to the Mario Mentor's house, but what it blossomed right. into, could you have imagined kind of what a gift it would be to the program and to, and to all the right. kids that coach there to have that stage to share their heart? Right. Yeah, well, the hot seat, in essence, was an opportunity. We were looking for ways to build team. And we knew as a staff, uh, we would have devotionals in the morning. And so every coach would take, take his turn before the staff meeting began to say something inspirational, hopefully, speak from the heart. And then we'd pray and ask God to help us throughout the day and all that kind of good stuff. And so what we learned is when, when the coaches would take turns kind of sharing what was on their heart, you would uh, all of a sudden become closer to that person. This It might have been a guy that got under your skin most of the time, but then you hear his heart and you're like, hey, he's not such a jerk anyway, you know? And uh, so we learned that uh, if you allow the players to have the floor, especially your your leadership, your seniors, to sit there in front of the team and have everybody's attention and be able to say what it means to him to be a bulldog. That was mainly the, that was the main gist of what the starting point was, what it means to them to be a dog. And they got to tell their story. And so, you know, you got laughter, you got tears, you got emotion, all, you know, all kind of directions, but mostly it brought the team together. And, um, you know, one of the strongest ones I remember, and there was a few good ones, but, and I mentioned it in the book, the one that uh, DJ Shockley had was one of the most meaningful to me and most powerful 
words that were said in that seat. And uh, I'll let people read the book to, to get on the whole story. But um, it was it was pretty amazing. You know, shock. He had everybody's uh, love and attention and respect already. Uh, but after that hot seat moment, uh, it was galvanized. And obviously, they played for him. And uh, we, we won, the, won the SEC championship in 2005 under his leadership. I want to ask you about something you talked about in the book, just because it struck me. You, you said that when you took the job at Miami and you put together the cut-ups for guys to look at, that about 65 to 70% of the clip and the cut-ups you said in the book were – kind of examples of how to do things the right way on certain plays or whatever it may be. And you said when right. you got finished doing it, about 65% of them ended up being Aaron Murray. And I thought, boy, yes. what an, what an endorsement of a player that, that to say something like that, could you just talk on y'all's relationship and what it was like coaching him? Well, you know, he did do a lot of things, right. If I'd have made those cutups uh, six, seven years into my time at Georgia, 70% of them would have been David Green, same yeah. type of guy, yeah. same, same type of attention to detail. And, uh, you know, if you say we're going to take this step, he took that step. If we're going to make this ball fake this way, we're going to make, he would make the ball fake that way. If we said this is your progression of reads, then he would go through that progression like a machine. Both of those guys did. And uh, that's, that's how they earned the job. And that's how they became four-year starters. And that's how they – you know, won so many games that they won. Uh, but Murray was – he was one of those guys. And uh, you, you could count – I mean, I knew as a play caller exactly how he was going to react to whatever coverage. If it was a certain coverage, I almost knew where the ball was going to go before I went there because I knew where his progression would take him. And uh, he was going to do it, you know, kind of, you know, by the book now. There's still time when things break down. You got to be a player. You got to you got to you know throw throw the ball away or run for a first down or whatever it is. That, you're not robotic, but you're systematic in way in the way you think. And what happens is when you create good habits in practice, create good habits in the meeting room, create good habits when you take your quarterback test. Then when every when the you know what hits the fan in the game, you'll react properly more times than not. And uh, both those guys were really good at that. You have a career full of them, I'm sure. But if you had to pick your biggest wow moment uh, from your coaching career, what would it be? Well, I go back to game one, season one. I go back to the Hobnell boot games in Tennessee. And, and for a lot of reasons. I mean, I'm first year head coach, first year in the SEC. First away game, playing Tennessee, who had beaten Georgia nine out of ten times, playing a really good Tennessee team. Right. I mean, Tennessee that year played in the SEC championship game. If they had won the game, they'd have played for the national championship. So they were a not a good team, but a great team that year. And uh, for us to go in there and get the victory, the way we got the victory, after it looked like we won it, and then it looked like we lost it, and then we came back, and I think under a minute to come back and win it. Uh, you know, him, Veron Haynes over the middle on the eight, from the eight-yard line with eight seconds to go, whatever it was. Uh, it was a defining moment for David Green. It was a defining moment for Coach Rick and our staff. And it just gave us some credibility, uh, even more credibility amongst our players and even amongst ourselves. And I think the fan base started to think we had a, we had a decent idea of what we were doing. Yeah, that's a great one. Plus, it, it certainly doesn't hurt that it comes with one of the, the most iconic calls ever, right? Larry Munson teed that one up perfectly. <laughs> yeah, he made, he made it special for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I have to ask you because it was during your first season, and this Saturday will be the, the 20th anniversary of September 11th. What was it like navigating that in real time as a coach and a leader of, right. a, of, of a football <clears throat> program? Well, I'll never forget – uh, we had a staff meeting in the morning of, of 9-11. And uh, after the staff meeting, we were getting ready to watch some recruiting tape. And back in those days, we, we, we watched it on a television that had a VCR machine. 
And so you turn the TV on to, before you stick the tape in and we're seeing what we thought was a movie. We didn't know what was going on. And as we're watching the, the Twin Towers, like everybody else in America was doing, you know, we saw the second plane, uh, you know, hit, hit the second tower. We're like, what the heck's going on? And we realized it was real. We turned the volume up because usually the volume, you don't have volume up when you watch recruiting tape, you know. So we started listening to what was going on and found out it was real. And it just obviously blew everybody away. And, uh, you know, life changed for everybody. Our thoughts went to the horrific thing that had happened, the people dealing with it, you know, people running to trouble instead of away from trouble, the first responders and just all the things that were happening was uh, just, you know, we weren't thinking about football anymore at all. At that time, we were worried about our country and all that kind of good stuff. And, of course, eventually we canceled the game and, it was a game against Houston. We actually actually played at the end of the season. Uh, but there's a couple good things that came out of it. Uh, small, but maybe significant when it comes to life in general. But at that time, during that time frame, there was a guy I remember. He'd ride around his pickup truck, and he'd always have his Confederate flag flying, you know. And uh, I didn't appreciate it. And I never stopped him and said anything about it, but. Uh, bottom line was I wasn't real thrilled about it, but after 9-11, he changed that flag to the American flag. And it just kind of showed a little bit about what, what can happen under a crisis if everybody decides to get their act together, you know. And another right. thing that happened is, you know, we mentioned DJ Shockley. Shockley was a freshman, and we actually had planned to play Shockley in the game against Houston, we, we had already decided we were going to get him in the game. And that would have taken away his redshirt year. So because we didn't play the game until the end of the year and started conference play, I think, the very next week, once we started playing again, uh, we decided not to get him in the game and thought about redshirting him. So the fact that he redshirted that year allowed him to be there for his fifth year and be there in the hot seat and be the SEC championship game MVP and uh, championship quarterback. So as horrible as the day that was, there was some good that came from it. Oh, I love both those stories. Those are two great stories. And, and, and I think a good example of the fact there's always light when there's darkness, right? There's always yeah. something that good that, that comes out of the bad. Oh, that, that's beautiful. I love to hear that. Well, Coach, we, uh, we certainly appreciate you hanging with us today. We want to close with you today how we always close, which we do something called the Smart 16, which is kind of a lightning round set of questions. Um, as right. Sort of an, an homage to Coach Smart's old number when he was uh, in his playing days with the dogs. So uh, I'm, I'm going to shoot him at you here. So the question right. one is, what's your middle name? Allen, A-L-L-A-N. I don't know why it's spelled that way, but Mark Allen Richt. All right. Who is either? I'll let you do either on this because you were a college player as well. Who is either your favorite teammate of all time or who's the favorite player that you ever coached? Uh, well, when I saw the, the list of questions, it was going to be who's your favorite dog? Yeah. And so I'm, go I'm going back to that. And I'm going to say the water girl was my favorite dog. All right. That's uh, a good pick. <laughs> yeah. That, that, it's like people ask me who's my favorite player. It's like picking your favorite say, kid, right? Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, how many kids you got? You got more than one kid? Who's yeah. your favorite? You know, even if you got one, you're not gonna tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. That's so true, too. I've got four as well. So uh, I get that. I wouldn't I wouldn't tell a soul who I like the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your favorite game you were ever a part of? Yeah, I just said it. The hobnail boot game was, you know, had to be. And it wasn't because it was, it was, like I said, we were, we were just feeling our way around. We we're just trying to prove we belonged uh, as a staff in particular. I mean, we all believed in each other, but I mean, until you have a game like that and, you know, the, uh, another side note on that game, we're in the locker room after the game celebrating and, um, I'm calming everybody down to say what a great job, blah, blah, blah. And somebody's jumped up and said, hey, coach, we finished the drill. 
Oh man. And I said, you're right. We finished the drill. And that's the, uh, it's talking about, you know, our mat drill program, off season program, how important it is to finish the drill as hard as you started. And, uh, so we kept banging away at learning how to finish the drill. And it also meant don't quit no matter what. And somebody jumped up and said, hey, coach, we finished the drill. And so that's exactly what happened, man. We finished the drill. And that became our mantra, you know, for the rest of the time I was at Georgia. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm a little upset with you. I was reading this, I was reading this section about the mat drills, and I was having some, some flashbacks <laughs> to, our, to, our, to our, old, our old August days. Our high school coach, we did mat drills at 7 a.m. to start the two-a-day period. So we'd go oh, yeah. seven, seven, at seven a.m. Ten minute break at eight, then start first morning practice. Then afternoon, you know, this is this is old days. We went seven to five every day for we two had, weeks. We had a we had a coaches clinic, and our the main thing that we showed was our mat drill program. <laughs> so all my, <laughs> all my high school coaches in the southeast that came to that clinic, they took it back and put it in their program. So I apologize. Yeah, boy. Yeah, boy, it wore us out, man. <laughs> but, hey, we didn't lose any games in the fourth quarter. I can tell you that. That's good. Okay, what was your favorite rivalry as a head coach? Yeah, that's a tough call, too. But I'm going to go ahead and just say Auburn. Uh, it's the longest uh, rivalry in the South. And uh, and it is it's so close in number. I don't know what it is today. But back during my time, it was like almost 50-50. Yep. Uh, you know, 51 wins, 51 wins in one tie or whatever the heck it was. I don't even remember. But uh, it was such a close deal. And, and we're, we're a lot alike, whether we like to say it or not. You know, the universities are sim similar and, and the programs are very similar. And you've had your crossover coaches, Coach Dooley, obviously being, I think he was an Auburn player, coached at Georgia. And Pat Dye, I think, was the same thing in reverse. And, so a lot of familiarity with each other and a lot of respect, whether we like to admit it or not. It's funny. When we started this interview series, we kind of took a straw poll, myself and my co-host, about what would be the most popular answer. And we all just, we kind of said, well, it'd probably be Florida, right? Cocktail party is such a big thing, and that'll probably be it. I'm going to tell you it's been like 85% Auburn has been the answers. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah I, I think there's a, a lot of heat, a lot of heat and a lot of history behind that rivalry. So, yeah, I think yeah. there's a lot of truth behind what you said. All right, what's your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference? Well, I'm going to kind of cop out on it a little bit, but um, I'm going to say the favorite away stadium away from Athens would be, back in the day, the Georgia Dome because you were playing for the SEC <laughs> Championship. So, yeah, that was, my, that was my favorite spot to go at the end of the year. Heck, yeah. All right, what is the loudest home game you ever coached between the hedges? Yeah, I, I got to say the first blackout we did, uh, it, was, it was worse than bonkers, as Larry Munson would say. That's right. Uh, it, it was crazy how loud the fans got. And it was crazy how excited the players were. We, we truly pulled one over on them. We, we did surprise them with those jerseys that day. And they they didn't know about it till after pregame warm up. They warmed warmed up in red. They went into the locker room. They went into the. They had a history of before I even got there of going back into the shower area, turning out the lights. Somebody'd give a fiery speech, and then they'd pray together. So I knew they were going to do that after pregame warm up. And I told the equipment guy, John Misha, I said, "Look, you tell only who you have to tell, but." When they're in there praying and, and doing their thing, I want a jersey at everybody's locker when they come back. And so when they came back, man, those jerseys were there and they went nuts. I'm in, I'm in, and I'm in the locker room, in the coach's locker room. I'm I'm changing into my Johnny Cash outfit. So I'm going all <laughs> black. I'm hearing those guys hooping and hollering. When I came out to see the team, I'm not lying to you. It was it was so it was like a sauna. There's so much heat in that room from the uh it's not it was not a big locker to begin with. But uh <laughs> they I mean I, I didn't have to say anything but let's go. And uh no motivational speech that day. I was afraid might have taken it out of them. They expended so much energy putting those jerseys on. 
Well, somebody had either said it on one of the uh, college telecasts this weekend or maybe had tweeted it. Somebody that covers college football had said that the beauty of college football is the magical moments that are unplanned that just come from the beauty of the sport. And boy, that that night in 07 was one of them. I mean, that blackout night was just one for the ages, something you couldn't yeah. plan or couldn't couldn't duplicate. Just what a, what a no. magical night that was. Yeah. And, so, you know, we talk about being loud. I, I, my headset had two earpieces, so usually you don't hear much crowd noise, but it was so loud the noise was going into my mouthpiece, uh, into my ears, and we, we no one could hear anything. Not a thing. Oh, that, that's so awesome. All mm. right, you get to choose the headlining act at the Georgia Theater. Who do you choose? Well, I, I read through this question. I, I'm, just, I'm assuming you're asking for a musical group, or what are you asking? Yeah, for? yeah. Yeah, any any musical act that, that you would want to see play the Georgia Theater, who would it be? Well, people won't even know who this is. Nicole C. Mullen. She's a faith-based artist that uh, sang this song called My Redeemer Lives. And uh, it's it's my favorite song of all time. So everybody can look that up. My my Redeemer Lives, my Redeemer Lives, uh, Nicole C. Mullen. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay. Question eight, and this this isn't really something I don't guess you've you've ever really gotten it done, but because between coaching, whether it be at Georgia or at Miami, and now doing your work for the ACC Network, but if you were to get to attend the cocktail party, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, as a spectator, what would what would be the cocktail that you were mix, mixing or the pregame drink that you were mixing for the world's largest outdoor cocktail party? Right. Well, I'm going to go back to the most famous cocktail that was made by the water girl uh we were playing the year that uh tim tebow was a quarterback and everybody was calling him superman so she wanted to get a mixture of power aid that looked like kryptonite she put that together and told the players that funny looking power aid drink was kryptonite to help take <laughs> care of tebow and that was that was the very game that we the boys rushed the field and had that crazy two penalty celebrations. So I'd say kryptonite. So I, I want to tell you a story about that. We had Asher Allen on the show and I think Asher Allen had the fumble recovery to set that up. And he said, so I've, I've run back down the field to, to set everything up. And he goes, so I'm on the sideline and I'm still gas. So I'm getting oxygen. He goes, right. so I'm, <clears throat> I'm on the sideline getting oxygen. He goes, I'm one of the only people that wasn't in the scrum. He's like, it's one of my biggest regrets from when I was a player was not being out there for it. So I just thought that was kind of a cool, cool, cool behind the scenes thing for him. So that's cool. Okay. I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to get you in trouble with anybody with this question, but if you could only eat one meal in, in Athens, what's what's your favorite place to eat in Athens? I know that's putting you between a rock and a hard place. Very (laughs) tough call, but I'm going to go by where I probably ate the most while I was at Georgia coaching. And that was Chick-fil-A at Alps. Uh, so, uh, that's probably where I hate the most. So I'll say Chick-fil-A. That's a good one. That's a good one anywhere, brother. I'm boy. I, I love that. Except Sundays. We got nothing on Sundays. My, my, my co-host and I are going to do a, uh, eating challenge with each other where we get one of the big party nugget trays and yes. see, see which one of us can do it the most. Cause we're going to a lot of kids' birthday parties now. And that is the oh, kids' yeah. birthday party trick du jour is the, uh, that's what the nugget do. tray. That's right. That's right. You can never lose with that. You sure can. <laughs> All right. Did you have any game day superstitions either when you were playing or when you were coaching? <clears throat> All right, this is weird, and maybe some people might think it's crude, but it really – it's not – it was not crude. But more so when I was calling plays as an offensive coordinator, if we were kicking butt and winning at halftime, I would choose not to use the restroom. If we were losing at halftime, I'd go to the boys' room and and uh, you know do what you do. So it was kind of kind of weird, and kind of, it was very stupid and sometimes painful. But uh, the bottom line was, if we were winning, I'd hold it. Hey, hey you, you you can't break you can't break tradition like that either. If it works one time, you got to stay with it. You got to keep going. That's it. That's it. 
All right. What is your favorite Sanford Stadium pregame tradition, whether it's Lone Trumpeter or Larry Munson coming over the waves doing battle him yeah. or dog well, walk? Or, yeah. well, what's easy, your favorite? Easy question. It's dog walk. Yeah. You know, we, we kind of brought back the dog walk. You know, it was very famous and happened organically when the, the players used to enter on the other side of the stadium by the railroad tracks. Right. That was, that was really the original dog walk, so to speak. But uh, when we <clears throat> when we got there, we wanted to bring it back to life and brought the dog walk through the parking lot. And uh, I, I went on the first dog walk that we did uh, as, as I was head coach. And, uh, you know, I, I spent so much time just in the office. You know, you get up, you go to the office, you get to work, you go home. I mean, it's dark when you get there, it's dark when you leave. And you don't really get a chance to interact with the fans. And But that dog walk, you do. And I got to see the passion of the fans and how much they love their team. And it was, it was very emotional for me. And uh, it was something that I decided only to do uh, once a year. The first, the first dog walk of the year, I would walk. And then uh, I'd let the players have the fun every time afterwards. But that, that's by far the greatest tradition for me. Okay, I think I know the answer to this one. Black right. jerseys. Yes or no? Right. I, you know, yes, obviously. You just got to <laughs> yeah. pick, pick your shots. I mean, <clears throat> of course, we wore them against Bama and got beat down real bad one time. So the black jerseys are really good when you win. They're not as good when you lose. Uh, but, I, you know, the, if the players love it, you know, like it was a big deal to get black shoes. And then it was a big deal to get white shoes. And it was a big deal to get black jerseys. You know, I – I didn't like to mess much with the tradition of the uniform because it's very classic look. George is the red and black. So I, I felt okay going with black and, you know, silver britches obviously win the day as far as I'm concerned, but, you know, I never liked red on red or, you know, all one color. Yeah. Uh, I, I like going with the silver britches as much as much as possible. Okay, what is either as a player or as a coach the loss that you're still not over? Right. Uh, I got a couple. I think it was 2014 Georgia Tech. We lose in overtime. That one still hurts me. And uh, and then, of course, the game we lost to Alabama, everybody would probably say number one. The game that could have launched us into the national championship game against Notre Dame, I guess that was 2012 or 13. One of those two, and uh, yep. you know those two were tough. You know, if we win the if we win the Bama game and <clears throat> beat Notre Dame, I, I'd probably still be coaching there. So that might be the one that hurt the most. All right, we changed this question up a little bit because when we started, the varsity was still in its iconic location in Athens. So we've made a pledge that we're not going to do 14 the way it used to be until the varsity reopens in Athens. So what we've switched yeah. it to is what is your hash brown order at the Waffle House? Yeah, I'm, I'm straight up uh, hash browns with nothing in them. I, I, I would actually steam them because I'm a health nut. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> you can steam your hash browns if you want. But long story short, I just went scrambled eggs and then i'd put my hash browns on top and then i just bury it with ketchup and that, that's how i did it I, I didn't like all the other stuff inside of it now if i had had if i had to eat hash browns only it would be green peppers mushrooms onions and cheese uh, okay. but if i get it if i get them with my eggs and ketchup that's that's all i need is plain jane yeah it's like a hash brown burrito i get i'm i'm, I'm good with that <laughs> I'm good, good with the mix. Hey, I, when we when we moved back, when we bought the home in Athens and you know moved back in town, you know I like fully loaded pizza. Don't get me wrong, but when when Waffle House when the Waffle House wasn't there, I started freaking out, man. I'm like, how in the world would I have survived back in the day? That's how we were. We went back. We left. We went to a trip. We ate a Waffle House on Sunday morning, like we always do after a Georgia game. And then when we came back for the next trip, it was gone. And we were like, oh. where, what are we supposed to do now? That yeah. was tough, man. Tough. Okay. There ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing noon kickoffs. Yes or no? 
as a coach, I loved him, you know, because you got to play the game. You didn't have to sit around and wait all day. You got to play the game, knock it out. Truthfully, if you're playing at noon, you're playing a team you should be able to beat. You were not in a primetime slot, 3.30 CBS or night game. So you got to play the game. Hopefully you got the win. You got to feel good about it. And then you get home in time to spend time with family and, and just be a fan and watch games. Right. I and mean, I, loved, I loved watching college football, especially SEC football games in the afternoon and evening of, of a noon kick, especially, obviously, the ones at home. Uh, the other thing, too, is just from a coaching standpoint, if you play a night game and don't get out of there till out of the locker room till you know, 11, 12 or whatever, and by the time you get home, it could be 2, 3 in the morning. That, that's tough. It's tough right. for your staff to get up the next day and grade film and all that kind of deal. So I didn't mind getting it over with and uh, playing early. All right, last question. Is college football playoff fine how it is, or and let's stay with what the, the rumor is, or expand to 12 teams? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I'd say expand to eight. I think if you expand to 12, you you got to take something away. you got to change the number of uh, regular season games. If you go to eight, you might not have to do that. Uh, and if you go to eight, you could get the winner of the Power Five, uh, and two winners of a group of five, the, the highest rated, and then maybe one in, one independent. And you could get, you know, more uh, flavor in the playoffs and playing meaningful games with, with teams from all over the nation and with, with a group of five schools that probably deserve a shot, a Cincinnati of, as of late type of, type of team. Yeah, I thought it was neat to see what the matchups would have been last season. And then you go, boy, how much fun would that have been? Like in an eight-game playoff to see those teams face off and just kind of duke it out on the field. I just think there's right. some beauty in that. And, and, yeah. and, you know, at every other level of football, even in the college ranks, whether you're one AA or D2 or D3, that's how we do it, right? We let everybody right. just roll the ball out and figure it that's out. That's right. And so, yeah. I, and, you know, if I'm sure it's the same with you. As a Georgia fan, you, you think about the years, well, hey, we would have been in the dance, right? Like, right. we would have been in the dance this year, we would have been in the dance that year, and we would have got to know. And I think right. the one for Georgia fans is 07, right? 07 is the year everybody goes, boy, nobody was beating us in December and January that year. I mean, right. that team was like a steamroller. Yeah, even a, even a 14 playoff <laughs> as, as it exists today, we would we would have gotten a few of them that we didn't get a shot at. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you're off the hot seat, Coach. Thank you for indulging us with that. We appreciate that. All right. Have a great day. All right, Coach. Thank you for thank you for spending time with us. Y'all make sure and go out and get Coach's book, Make the Call, Game Day Wisdom for Life's Defining Moments. You will not regret it. Thanks so much, Coach. You're welcome anytime. Go dogs. All right. Go dogs. Hey, George is better now. 